21 through 24 is our text. Jeremiah 21 through 24. I'm going to read as an introduction for us, 21, 1 through 10. So the first 10 verses, we'll pray and we will look at Jeremiah's message here for the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah 21, 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. When King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, the dreaded king of Babylon, is making war against us. So the messengers are sent to Jeremiah. What is going to happen? Ask God what's going to happen. And Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Perhaps God will save us. Jeremiah, ask him for us. Verse 3, Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, verse 7, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into their enemies, into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. You can see the messengers just blinking. (laughs) Come again. God's going to fight for who? Them? And then in verse 8, Jeremiah now gives them, in light of all this, this is what God asks. And to this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city, Jerusalem, shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the enemy, to the Chaldeans, who are besieging you, they will live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. All right, let's pray. God, we are thankful for the grace that you pour upon this earth. Let us not be hindrances to the grace that you're pouring upon the earth. Let us not hoard it. And hide it. But God, through us, your people, let it be like a river, like a flood that overtakes the lost, the weary, the hurting. 
And may you be seen through the way that we allow you to work through us. Whether through pain or pleasure, we invite your work in our midst. We yield ourselves, we surrender our ways if it means that you will be seen and glorified. Let us not stand in the way of you, but let us walk in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thomas Merton said that to consider persons, events, and situations only in the light of their effect upon myself is to live on the doorstep of hell. To consider persons, events, and situations only in the light of their effect upon myself. In other words, I consider you, and I consider this moment, and I consider that event, and all these things around here, and I only care about what they do for me. That is the life that's living on the doorstep of hell. That's the life that is not living in the full freedom and in the fullness that God is calling it into. And, of course, we have here a really difficult situation in Jeremiah 21 through 24. Um, the Babylonians, remember, remember that Jeremiah is not chronological. We, we talked about this in the past, that there's going to be moments where it's just like, bam, we're in the future. Well, we're in the past. And, like, we're jumping around between decades sometimes. And it's hard for the reader, for you, even for me. <laughs> it's hard to make sense sometimes of where Jeremiah is going and where are we in the timeline of all of these things. So this is where we are. All the way up until now, we haven't had much to look at to help us understand the timing of things. It's just a lot of messages from Jeremiah. Now we have our first reference. We have who's on the throne. His name's Zedekiah. He was actually the very last king of Judah. After Zedekiah, there was no more king until a son of David from Mary and Joseph from Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, walked around Israel claiming he was God's Messiah. He was the king of Israel. Jesus. Zedekiah was the last actual king until Jesus claimed he was picking up that tradition and that, that rightful title. So we're at the very end. It's Zedekiah. We're at 598 BC to 586 BC. That was the time span of his reign. And the Babylonians were coming. They were no longer just this distant threat of, you guys better get your act together or they're going to someday come and they're going to wipe out the city. And you know, all the, mess the listeners to Jeremiah's message were like, yeah, that's never going to happen. Look at the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He's here. There's no way anything's going to happen to us. He's, he can't possibly be defeated by any other nation. We're good, Jeremiah. So just, you know, turn the deaf ear to you. We like this podcast better and that church and that sermon better. So we'll listen to that. And Jeremiah was living through this rejection and we've seen all of his mornings and, his, and, and those intense prayers where he's confessing. Uh, literally, he's being real with God. It's exactly how he feels like, you forced me into this. It's your fault that people hate me. And, you know, just throwing the arrows at God. And we see this whole prog this whole thing that's going on. And now we're at the last king of Judah. And the Babylonians are not just a message in Jeremiah's mouth. They're a physical force on the horizon. You can see the dust storm being kicked up from a marching army. 
You can maybe even see the gleam and glisten of spears and shields, the sun reflecting off of them over the horizon. This is real. If we want to get real graphic, the buzzards and the birds of prey are beginning to gather. And they hear the sound of trees being chopped down as the army, the marching army, is making its siege ramps and its uh, ramming devices to open the gate and such. This is getting very, very real. It's so real, suddenly the ones who have been rejecting Jeremiah's message come to Jeremiah, rather humbly, tail between the legs, right? Uh, Jeremiah, so you've been talking about this for a while now, right? So uh, what's going to happen? Let us know. And they're hoping for a good word, like, oh yeah, God, you know, he's totally going to give you guys one more chance. And it's just like the Exodus, when you thought that Pharaoh had a massive grip on you guys and nothing was ever going to change. God showed up with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he delivered you and said, go. And you guys went and it's like, whoa. And the Red Sea was parted and the enemy was destroyed in the waters and all praise and glory to God. And we sang on the other side of the Red Sea and everything was glorious. They were hoping Jeremiah would say that's going to happen again. Or the last time when the last enemy, the Assyrians, came and marched up against the very city of Jerusalem and they surrounded the walls and things looked like it was going to end right there. They woke up the next morning and suddenly the army was gone. Where did they go? They didn't even fire an arrow. And the Bible tells us that an angel came and sent this plague and and many of them died and they got up and left. And they're hoping Jeremiah would say, God's going to do that again. Everything's going to be fine. He's always delivered us. He's going to deliver us again. And so they come to Jeremiah. Got good words, right? Something we can put in the papers. Something to boost the morale of the nation. And Jeremiah says, oh yeah, God's going to do something big. Strong. Nobody can resist what he's about to do. And they're like, yeah, this is good. This is good. This sword, nobody stands a chance against Yahweh's sword. Yeah, yeah. And then they hear the part that Yahweh's on the Babylonian side. He meant Judah. What did you say? He's fighting against us. All right, what's happening in sports? We need to publish something more positive. And they, this, is, this is not a good message they're hearing. This is... This is a reversal exodus event. It's not God coming to deliver his people. It's God coming to enslave his people. Very telling, isn't it? Actually, he even says the phrase um, in verse 9, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, but he who goes out and surrenders. He who goes out, that's actually the root of the word exodus. That's what the exodus event was. It was their going out. And Jeremiah also used the phrase, a strong hand and a strong arm, an outstretched hand and a strong arm. That's exactly what Yahweh said he was doing in the exodus. He was with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. That's exactly the same terminology. Jeremiah is using exodus language here, but it's a, what what is it, like a de-exodus, a reversal exodus? And and the message he's telling them is, don't sit in the city and try to survive. Surrender. Go out from Jerusalem and you will find salvation. This is what's happened. Jerusalem itself has become the new Egypt. The king of Jerusalem has become the new Pharaoh. 
That's how bad things have gotten. And God, like with Egypt, has to break this establishment down because it is, an, it is now officially an anti-God's kingdom movement. Rather than freeing people, it's oppressing people. So this is what I want us to look at here. Is It's so interesting because it's so backwards from what you would think. The way of life, he says there in verse 8, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. There's an option. There's, there's two paths here. There's two ways. There's two roads. There's two trails. There's two decisions. You got life and you got death. But the way of life is not as easy as the way of death. And so this is how he describes each way. Verse 9. He who stays in this city shall die. And then he lists the sword, the famine, the pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans shall have his life as a prize of war. Just like when you sack a city and you get possessions and you get prizes from war. Um, you who go and surrender to the enemy, that's going to be your reward. You're going to live. Very sobering because this is what you expect to hear. The way of life. How do we defeat the Babylonians? And you're expecting this plan of, well, we'll offer 50,000 oxen to Yahweh and we'll fast and pray for a week straight in the temple and we'll get, you know, we'll rip our clothes and wear sackcloth and put ashes in our hair and we'll mourn and weep and we will like, we'll read the Torah like never before and we'll memorize things and we'll get it all right. We'll tithe. We'll, and, you know, they got the list of things to do and they're thinking, that's the way of life. And Jeremiah says, nope. Give it all up. Turn it all back. The only way to live here is to die. It's the paradox of the Christian message that has been declared from Jeremiah's time all the way till Jesus made this a very clear message. He who wants to follow me must take up his cross, deny himself. For if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to lose your life, just save it. This is the same thing Jeremiah is saying. This is the way of salvation and life and rescue. It's give it up. Surrender, face death, square in the face. Don't fight the enemy, but yield to the enemy. You're like, we like to survive. And this is why this is so counter what we want to hear. We want to know how to fight, how to stand up. Give us 12 steps. We'll take care of this. Crusaders. Against a demon, not a <laughs> people. <laughs> uh, the way of life, Jeremiah is saying, is to actually go into exile. See, there's this massive wave that's coming across Jerusalem, and it's the exile. It's the Babylonian Empire is going to put away the king, the temple, the city, and dislodge the people and bring them to different nations and into pagan cultures. And Jeremiah is essentially saying, when this tidal wave comes, you who try to resist it will be destroyed. But if you just let the riptide take you, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be extremely terrifying. It might even hurt. You might even feel like you're suffocating. You're on the verge of drowning. But you will find yourself okay in the end. Don't fight the tide. Go with that flow instead. 
Let it carry you. Ride it out. This is God's plan that you go into exile. So surrender to it. Well, obviously not everybody likes this message. So we have some antagonistic examples here. We have some antithesis. We have some opposite examples. Things of what the way of life doesn't look like. The way of death. The way of death. It's, it's chosen by the kings. It's chosen by the prophets. So this is where we are. We're in chapter 21, verse 11. And we have this message to the king of Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver them from the hand of the oppressor. Him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because your deeds are evil. And so he begins now with this message to the king, the dynasty. Generally, generally, all the kings who've ever been over Judah, this is what you guys need to hear from the beginning. Every morning when you wake up, You are the judge of the nation. It is in your power to rescue the oppressed and the outcast and the homeless and those that are being ripped off. It is in the power of the king to right the wrongs of the kingdom. Ah, but they're not doing that. They'd rather wake up and watch TV and figure out how to make their palaces bigger, how to get more gold, how to tax the people a little bit more. So we see this in chapter 22. It goes on. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, there will enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. In other words, if you take care of the kingdom and the people who are oppressed and ripped off, and you make sure that everybody has what they need, and you take care as a just judge, and, and you bless the, uh, those that are not blessed, and you curse those that are ripping others off, and you create a society of equality and fairness and justice and righteousness, then there will be no end to this kingdom and kings will come in and out with their servants and their pomp and this will be a blessed nation. But, verse 5, if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. The kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, are now playing the part of Pharaoh. You get the message from Jeremiah that they are not releasing those that are in bondage that are in trouble they're seizing opportunities not to help but to enrich and of course if you have a society of people who are getting poorer and the rich that are getting richer how does the king gain leverage you side with the powerful and the wealthy and you make friends with them and you make sure that they get laws passed or you give them a pat on the back for the things you cover up the dirt that they're doing And you got this entourage of power and wealth around you. You have the ones of significance that have your back now. They'll take care of you. The king has become Pharaoh. He's created an Egypt. And most of the populace is oppressed. 
He's looking for power. And the problem with power, when we look to empower ourselves, is we always oppress somebody else along the way. The way that most people accrue power for themselves is by robbing the power of others. The less powerful you are, the more powerful I am. And so it's not like there's just this wealth of power that's dropped out of the sky on top of this person. It's that he's gathering power from individuals who have the right to have it, and he's amassing it for himself. It's robbery. It's oppression. It's slavery. And this is what the kings are doing. This is not the way of life. This is the way of death. This is not the way of surrender and go into exile. This is the way of survival and build up my kingdom and protection. Right? So in verse 13, chapter 22, verse 13, this is where it gets kind of graphic. And what actually happens here in this section is from 22:11 on, it's not just dealing with the kings of Judah. It's now dealing with a specific line of kings, the sons of Josiah. Josiah was a good king, but his sons were very wicked and evil. And they were the very last kings of the time. And so he goes and he mentions a couple of them. Um, for example, Shalom is in verse 11. He, was, he only reigned for three months, and he was taken as a captive to the Egyptians. And then Shalom's son, uh, Jehoiakim, or I'm sorry, his brother, Jehoiakim, came, up, came upon the throne, and he actually reigned for 11 years. And what happened is, when he took the throne, he decided that the tribute we're paying to the Babylonians to keep them happy and off of our back that's not a big deal. The fact that all the people are suffering because we have to tax them so much to pay the Babylonians, that's not a big deal. The fact that I have the nicest house in the entire kingdom and it's the richest, most luxurious house, it's too small. I want it bigger. With all these things going on, he has the audacity to, the first move he does is he takes the throne is he says, palace extension And think about it. You're scrapping around for your daily bread. You're probably oppressed by some rich dude down the street that owns your land and your house and everything, even the clothes on your back. And and you're like, you're being taxed to death so that the Babylonians can be happy. And the king sits there and goes, my big house isn't big enough. And so what does he do? Verse 13, 22, 13. This is the context Jeremiah is talking to. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So how is this palace being built? Oh, by gathering some Israelites around and, okay, whip. You guys work, work, work. And then when they're done doing all this work, it's like, do we get paid? I have to pay the Babylonians. They're getting nothing. Forced labor here. This is not... Egypt all over again? Verse 14, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, cedar, the most expensive wood of the time, and painting it with vermilion. Now, Jeremiah, oh, I love him for saying this. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Is that what makes a king a king? Because he's richer and more powerful than everybody else. Is that what makes you successful? Is that what makes you popular? Is that what makes you meaningful in life? 
because you compete with others in that very thing you want to be the biggest and most and best at? Verse 16. Um, well, your father, he said in verse 15, your father ate and drank and he did justice and righteousness. So, I mean, he had prosperity and he did the right thing. And then verse 16, your father, he, that's Josiah, he judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Is it not to imitate me what it means to know me? Come back to that in just a second. Verse 17. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Listen, king. Is not justice... Doing right for your people, blessing your nation, giving life to it, is not that greater than cedar, possessions, power, wealth, a name? What's the priority here? The king is living for himself, not for his nation. And then that verse there, verse 16, is this not to know me, is to do right for others. That is a slap in the face to them who claim, of course, we know God, God gave us this power, blah, blah, blah. But it's a slap in the face to me too. Me, a pastor, I also consider myself, because I love theology, I'm semi, you know, on the side, I'm a theologian. (laughs) I know God. I read books about God. I could probably write a book. It wouldn't be very good, but I could write a book about God. I talk about him every week, multiple times. It's like, I know God. And you look at that, and is this not to know God? That you imitate his character. Not that I have ideas about who he is and what he's not. Not that I have razor-sharp theology ironclad logic. I can win debates against atheists. I am a champion for truth and apologetics. You can all sing my praises if that was true. But that doesn't mean that I know God. There's a destruction here of God being just an idea. And I, I feel, to be honest that our Western 21st century church in the American side of the world thinks that God is an idea. That we just have to talk about him enough and then people will know him. They'll get him. We just have to describe him in the right way. But, as you know, I've spent a lot of my years working with youth. I still do. I, I've been going to RIM on, when, I'm in, when they're nice enough to invite me uh, to the Christian club and speaking to the students there. And we've got a Christian school right here, and I taught them last year. Uh, we got some students upstairs right now listening to JC teach them through Galatians. Um, 
there's a generation that is not being raised. We were raised with this whole evolutionary like invasion and being, we're all skeptical, like, well, that's new. That's not the way we've always heard it. But we have a generation now that's raised with that assumption. It's not a, like a, well, it might be true as a theory. It is, it's fact for them. That's how they're being raised. They're being raised in a school system that teaches science through empirical evidence. You guys know what an empirical universe is? Empiricism deals with observation and experience. Meaning, if I can't observe it, touch it, probe it, and test it, then it doesn't exist. It has to be here and to be real, it has to be in my hands or it has to be observable to my eye. There has to be something probable about it. It has to be experienced. And so science operates in that kind of a universe. It's an empirical universe. So it's a box system of what can be seen, observed, touched, and experienced. God has been shoved down the throat of the younger generation as an idea, as a system of things to adhere to with your mind, that if you believe the right things, you will know God. That if you Go to church, you will know God. If you shut up, stop texting, and listen to your youth pastor, you will know God. That if only they would spend less time on TV and on Facebook and more time in the Bible, they would know God. Granted, these are good things. I don't mean to put those down, but they're not enough. They don't actually get to the end itself. They're a means to the end. God is not an idea. He's not just a system of things to say, I believe that. He's the son of God. He's born of the Virgin Mary, that he died for my sins and rose again three days later and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's going to come back again and establish his kingdom for us. I know God now. To know God, Jeremiah is telling them, is to be a sower of the things of God. To know God is to sow God, like a, like, a, like a farmer that has seed, and he throws it out there. It's to say that God is compassionate. I don't only believe that he's compassionate, and I'm really glad that he is, because I'm really reaping the benefits of that. But it's to then go out and say, I believe in his compassion to the effect that I am sowing his compassion to the world around me. And I'm watching compassion blossom. I'm seeing this harvest of compassion around me. That's what Jeremiah is saying it means to know God. It's to sow who he is. And when that happens, when we begin to see a people who aren't just ascribing to ideas, but are beginning to sow a character... They're beginning to model the forgiveness by forgiving. They're beginning to model the grace of God by being gracious to the extreme effect that God is gracious. They're compassionate towards those that are oppressed and weak and poor to the extent that God is compassionate to us, rich and, uh, excuse me, poor and miserable sinners. When we begin to model those things, the empirical universe now has something to see, observe, touch, and probe. It is God being modeled and visible in our sowing of his character. In our modeling, our incarnating, our embodying, our living, our putting flesh and blood, our putting an empirical 
form to him. And I think that we have an age of skepticism and agnosticism and atheism primarily because we have people who claim to know God but won't sow the character of God around them. It's not that our logic is flawed. It's not that we're stupid to believe the spaghetti monster in the sky, as one atheist calls him. It's not that there's anything faulty about the faith. It's that we've reduced the knowledge of God to got it. Rather than Now they got it. That's what I think the world is looking for. They're looking for the real God to stand up. And we know that he's not going to just part the skies and say, boo, everybody, I'm real. I'm like, oh, massive change of everything. He's waiting for his church to stand up and say, we know him. Watch us show him. Um rant over (laughs) um so here we are sunday night bible study we're sitting here and we're sweating and we're thinking golly god help us (laughs) amen (laughs) here's what i want to throw out though is that it's not too late i know some of us are maybe on the latter tail of our life some of us are in the middle of it some of us are on the front part of it doesn't matter where we are but i want to caution us from the mindset of hezekiah one of the best kings Israel had. Isaiah 39, verse 8. Remember what he did? He was healed of this marvelous healing from this terrible sickness. And he's like weeping and dancing again. He's like, I'm healed. I'm healed. I thought I was going to die, but God gave me 15 more years. And then he starts inviting the Babylonians over and showing off his kingdom. And then Isaiah goes, who was just over here? Ah, oh, these really cool Babylonians. Isn't it great that I've got connections with world powers? And Isaiah just puts his head in his hands and says, good job, Hezekiah. That very people is going to come here and destroy this kingdom one day. And you know what Hezekiah says? The chapter ends with him saying, good, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. Now, let us not sit back and say, Well, I know that the future for Christianity and the younger generation is really bleak, but I'm about to kick it anyways. (laughs) Least, least it won't happen in my lifetime. You see, let us not be a church, no matter where our age is, that is like Hezekiah. Well, at least it's not happening in our place. At least we won't see it. But why not be part of the front lines of what God is doing? So that's the kings. Uh, Jeremiah has a lot to say to them. Now the prophets, it gets worse. Well, not just another form of bad. The prophets are actually in agreement with the king's ways. And they're not... The kings aren't doing right and the prophets aren't speaking right. 
So look, though we had this moment of sobering realization that, golly, it's not all about like what I think about God and having the right idea of him. It's about modeling his character and stuff. Though we just said all that, we also need to say that the right idea and thinking of God is important too. It's not to say, yeah, he's a big guy in the sky. Whatever you believe in, whatever I believe in, it doesn't matter. Let's just love each other. Um, The prophets were not speaking correctly. And so they get a little bit of rebuke too. And in verse 16 of chapter 23, we see towards the end of the verse that they are, Jeremiah says, God through Jeremiah says that they speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So, you know, there's this whole system of prophets out there that are kind of making up what God is like. And they're saying, uh, this is the way of life that we continue doing things the way we're doing it. And we make the temple look more glorious. And we keep taking money from the poor and helping the rich and, and making the, you know, the temple, it looks so good, doesn't it? So big. We got state of the art systems and, um, the sacrifice has never been better. And the altar is beautiful. And meanwhile, everybody's getting poorer. And, but they're encouraging it. And in verse 23, one of the problems is this. Chapter 23, verse 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Question. Am I, am I a God just at hand and not also a God that's far away? But the question is probably twofold. It's probably the other way around too. Am I not also a God that's near and not just far away? In theology, there's two big words for this. It's called imminence and transcendence. Imminence means God is here. He is dwelling among creation. Transcendence says he is there, bigger and better than all of it. So transcendence protects us from pantheism, which says that everything is God. Imminence protects us from deism, which says God is just there and he doesn't care. The two together have this dynamic living in our midst, incarnating in the flesh of Jesus, hearing our prayers, walking with us, but also greater than everything else kind of God. I think the accusation is, okay, false prophets. Some of you say, God is so here but he's not out there. They're at the point where they're almost pantheists. And what a pantheist would do in this situation is be like, well, um, God is studied in things like wood in this table in our temple structure and these animals and creation. And, and so um, we can't really hear from him what he's doing. We've got to kind of decipher what he's doing. And so what we do is we have this system. And because the system seems to be working at the moment, it must mean that God is blessing it. God is behind it because it's all working. Um, but then the other people, you know, that would be more of the deists and say, oh, God's not here. He's way over there. They might be more along the lines of um, who cares about the poor in our midst? Who cares about all these people? God is not caring about this earth or anything. We're just going to, yeah, he's over there. And we're more spiritual by being non-physical. <laughs> so there's this mess in the prophets. And I think there's this correction that we need, this balance of imminence and transcendence. This, he, yes, he's He's way beyond all the things that we can touch and handle and smell and sniff. But he's also in those things and those things are in him. And there's this union and harmony and that God is in our midst all the time, but not limited to that either. So there's this awareness that everything I do, I'm walking hand in hand with God. Um, so the prophets, it's one of the problems, uh, 
towards the end here in verse 30, chapter 23, verse 36. But the burden of the Lord, or the New King James says, the oracle of the Lord, you shall mention no more. For the oracle, the burden, is every man's own word. And you pervert the words of the living God, the God of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord spoken? I'm sorry, what has the Lord answered you? Or what has the Lord spoken? But if you say the burden of the Lord, thus says the Lord, because you have said these words, the burden of the Lord, when I sent you saying, you shall not say the burden of the Lord. And it's kind of confusing. It's just like all these terms and like Jeremiah is in these weird word plays and stuff. This is essentially, uh, it's like the, the prophets are walking around saying, God told me this and God told me that. And what I've found in my life is when I hear that, I get super, super skeptical, not because I don't think God can speak to people or through people. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here. (laughs) But because I've found that often people will use that phrase, God told me to tell you, or God gave me an insight about this. It's often for the sake of manipulating me. I'm thinking about going to school. I think that that's my next step in life. Well, I have the gift of discernment. And God told me that you're not to do that. You're to stay here working for my church. Nah. You're just trying to manipulate me. I know what God's calling me to do. That stuff happens. We need to be careful. You hear this all the time in youth ministry. Things like, so God told me that you're my future one. (laughs) Therefore, we need to get together. Oh, okay. God told you that. We need to be careful. There's there's people that want to manipulate under the name of God. There are preachers that want to say, you know, ah, God told me someone's withholding $1,000 tonight. So that's the prophets. So there's a lot of the way of death. This is not the way of life. This is all the kings, the prophets promoting the way of death. But they, of course, wouldn't call it that because no one would listen to them. So then chapter 24, you have this odd moment. And I'll just tell it to you. I know you all read it, right? In chapter 24, Jeremiah has this vision of two baskets. And both of them have figs. But in this basket... The figs have rotted. They're nasty. They're bad. In this basket, the figs are luscious and proper and edible and they're beautiful. And what Jeremiah is told is that the bad figs represent the people in Jerusalem. Useless, fruitless, spoiled, dead. The good figs represent the people who are exiled to Babylon. The ones in the wrong place are the good figs. And so this kind of brings the whole message of Jeremiah in this section. It bookends it. In the beginning, he says, go, surrender yourself. The way of life is towards the Babylonians. The way of death is to stay here and defend your fortress and survive. And at the end, he shows that those that stay and choose to survive, they're like rotten figs. And the ones that actually surrender and go with what God is calling them to do, as hard as it is, they are the ones bearing fruit. They are the ones that God has a future for. 
as we will hear next week. I have plans for you to prosper. If you have a future and a hope, those are the ones. So that's, that's the figs. It, you might have been like, oh, figs, what, who in the world? That's, that's what he's saying. So the way of life is what Jeremiah is calling the people to do. And he's asking essentially that these people surrender rather than survive. Because when I get in the mode of survive, I get in this selfish mode where everything around me needs to be manipulated for my purposes and I'm very skeptical and paranoid about everyone else and you're out to get me and I'm here to protect myself and I'll rip you off if it means that I get to live. It's all about survival. And it's very much is a description of a lot of the business world in our country and a lot of other places that work. It's just this, this mentality of I got to climb to the top. I got to make the money. I got to support. I got to survive. And everyone else is against me, so I'm against everybody else. And that's the mentality of people who choose the way of death. that want to stay in Jerusalem and say, I'm going to stay safe. I built my kingdom. I'm going to protect it. And nobody can come against this because I built it. And if it crumbles, then everything I live for is wasted. And I can't see my God fail like that. But the one who surrenders, oh, it hurts. Oh, it's not easy. Oh, you're going to have some things that you have to leave behind. There's going to be some things you're going to miss. There's going to be this uncertainty, this what does Babylon even look like? How are they going to treat me? I'm going to have a place to live. I'm going to be a slave. What's going to happen there? The uncertain, what's around the corner? But the one that surrenders to that, Jeremiah is saying, that is life. Life. You will live. These people are dead while they live. But you, by dying, by confronting every day the fears and the uncertainties and the fact that I am not my own, you actually live. The closer we are to death every day, the more alive we feel. I don't think Jesus was joking when he said, take up your cross and carry it with you. Experience, live in this way of I'm okay with dying. And I'm going to do this every day by giving life to others. I'm giving part of my life away. There's a poem. I'm going to put it up there by Eugene Peterson. Um, he has a book of poetry called Holy Luck. <laughs> it's really clever. Um, and... And this poem, this poem essentially says less is more. So this is it. A beech tree in winter, white intricacies unconcealed against sky blue and billowed clouds carries in its emptiness ripeness. Sap ready to rise on signal, buds alert to burst to leaf. And then after a season of summer, a lean ring to remember the lush fulfilled promises. Empty again in wise poverty that lets the reaching branches stretch a millimeter more towards heaven. The bowl, that's the trunk, the bowl expand ever so slightly and push roots into the firm foundation. Lucky to be leafless. A deciduous reminder to let it go. And I, you know, if you're like me, you have to read a poem a hundred times before you get it. Um, that's there, the description of a tree. And you see it naked in the winter. And when you're watching this now, but deep within it is everything it needs to flourish again. It looks dead. It looks like nothing's happening there, but it's all deep within. 
And it's all going to come out in its due time. And it comes out and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. But then the fall comes again and the winter comes and it loses the leaves again. And it looks naked and it looks dead. But that, Peterson is saying, is what it needs to do to get back to more fruitfulness and to be one you know, centimeter taller, a little bit rounder. It's talked about that narrow, that narrow uh, band, right? That talked about faithfulness. That's the rings you see in a trunk. You know, it gets one more wider. The point is, is that we go through these cycles of dying and living and dying and living. And each time we're willing to let go of the leaves and to go through that hard winter and to go through that experience of death, it comes with an added dimension of life with it. And some of us have never known what it means to be alive in Christ because we're so fearful of going into exile or, or whatever the death is for you. We're sitting here, we're trying to survive, and we are miserable. We don't even know the fullness that there is in Christ because we are unwilling to choose the way of life, which happens to have to go through exile. That's where Thomas Merton quote I read earlier comes in. That to consider persons and events and situations only in light of their effect upon myself is to live on the doorstep of hell. If I'm going to stay in the Jerusalem city and live safe and live in the survival mode, I am living in a lifeless existence. See, it's all about bending Selfishness seeks to bend everybody else's will towards himself. This is what I want, and so I'm going to get you to kind of bend with my wishes, and I'm going to make everything happen. And selfishness can only be satisfied when everything bends according to your own will. But the problem is, is we can hardly control our own bodies, let alone other people in the universe. It's an unfulfillable desire, selfishness is. Selfishness seeks to bend everything towards itself. And when, when you're trying to get it to bend and it eventually doesn't work, the, the what's it called? <laughs> Whiplash, what comes back hurts bad. It's a pursuit of pleasure, but it always ends in pain. But surrender, the way of life, the way entering into our own death and coming into this, this newness of life on the other side, that is seeking to bend yourself to others. Just like a branch in a tree would, right? You want the fruit off of the branch and you always do. You, you pull it down or you want the apple and you got to pull it down and it bends and finally it gives. It gave of itself. It gave of its life and now you have it and you're nourished and you're blessed and you're enriched. That is what the way of life is and that's what... Jeremiah is calling us into, that's what Jesus later called us into, bend, surrender, the way of life. It's giving of yourself. That, by the way, ties in nicely with chapter 23, verse 5, the branch. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David 
a righteous branch. Unlike these other kings, there's going to be this righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. He's going to do everything that your kings aren't doing. It's going to be awesome. And the days of Judah, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, don't miss this. Therefore, verse 7, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, they'll no longer say, as the Lord who lives, who brought us up, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But instead, they will say, verse 8, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So this branch is coming. It's going to be life-giving it's going to do what the kings aren't doing. It's going to enrich the society around itself, the people around himself. He's going to die so that they can live. And it's connected to the exodus and the exile. Once upon a time, verse 7 said, we're declaring this great God who led the people of Israel out of exile. The day will come, though, when we will not talk about the glories of being led out of Egypt. We'll talk about the glories of being led out of exile. A new exodus is going to happen. And we're all going to be regathered. And there's going to be life because we chose this way of life. And we're willing to die and enter into exile. There's going to be a coming out of exile, a restoration, a rebirth, a new life. And Jesus, when he comes, it's very clear that he's the branch who bends down to give his life for others. He even stoops down, washes the disciples' feet. And he's always stooping. He's always caring for the lowly. The ones the kings always neglected. The ones that were oppressed and harassed, that lived in a virtual Egypt all their life. He was going to them and bending down for them and surrendering self to them and choosing the way of life. And he himself modeled what Jeremiah called them to do. Jesus went into exile To gain real life. On the cross did he not cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was his exile. Separation from the Father. But he resurrected to give life to all who will follow his way of life. It goes through exile. It takes up the cross but the empty tomb is always on the other side. A new life. And in Luke 9, verse 31, Jesus is seen on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's talking with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John are observing. They probably don't get it because their mouths are gawked open, but Jesus is talking with Peter, I'm sorry, with Elijah and Moses about what? In English, it says about his departure. In the Greek, it says about his exodus. This is our branch. And I think that he's calling us to, if we know him, to sow him, to be that branch too that bends down, that chooses the way of life, which goes through exile, which dies to self, which allows to give of itself for the life of others on a daily basis. And you know, we here have the blessedness of dinner every single week, free of charge, and I wonder as we just think super practically, what can we, not just as individuals, I know you're all thinking that through, right? You're thinking that through, what am I doing about this message? But what are we as a church doing? 
And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be cool if we became branches that reached out? And, and, you know, you don't have to do anything special, unique, but just as simple as this. You saw somebody who's down now, a single mother, somebody just going through a divorce, or people that just lost their job, or they, they can't put food on the table. You just meet these people that are going through it rough. And how easy is it to say, the Sunday night Bible study gives a free dinner every Sunday night. Are we willing to walk in these doors with the less desirable, with the down and out and the poor, the people that aren't going to help us build our palace with cedar? I want to challenge us to not just eat the food every Sunday night and leave our commentary about how we wished it was burgers instead of tacos. And rather see this as a blessing, not just for the privileged and the well-to-do, but a blessing that is for all who are willing to even enter the doors. And you know what? I know Mike's heart and my heart and the rest of the pastors would be, I don't care if you force them to stay for the service. If all they do is eat and leave, that's what God would do. So I want to invite you guys to, in whatever way possible, choose the way of life, which isn't always the easy way. It is sometimes that invitation, that bringing somebody along, that reaching out in that uncomfortable moment. But to be willing to go into that momentary exile to find another ring on your trunk, another inch on your branches, another fruit on your bow. Bow, bow, one of those. So we're going to take communion here, and as the worship team and elders get all that ready, uh, it's going to be served to you, so you can sit tight. The reason we're holding this off for the end here is because I can't think of a more fitting act of commitment to the things we're talking about than holding the very demonstration that Jesus went into exile for us, that he, he gave of himself. He was the branch that bent for us. And that as we take it, it's not just a, I, I have the right idea about communion. I have the right idea about the cross. I understand all of that. And we take it and we're like, yes, my belief is in alignment with truth. But it goes one more step and says, I too, as I eat this, you are what you eat, right? As I partake this and it becomes part of me that I'm now going to become the demonstrator of what he did. Amen. Don't take that lightly. If you're not ready to eat it, just don't eat it. Maybe take it home until you're ready. That might be a good discipline to really search ourselves. And if you have no, if you've never even entered into any of this, there will be a pastor or two in the back corner over here, and they would be absolutely happy to share with you. And you can get up at your leisure and talk to them now or after the service. Then let us worship and sing and pray and reflect and we'll take communion together in a minute.